I uh, heard a story about a preacher who was out in his front yard one day uh, constructing or kind of making a, a wooden trellis. And as he was pounding away, he noticed there was, a, there was a little boy who walked by, and he stopped. And so he's kind of watching what he's doing. And he wasn't saying anything, but he was just watching. And so the preacher kept working, and after a few minutes, he noticed that he's still standing there. He's not going anywhere. And so the preacher's kind of pleased with the little boy, admiring what he thinks is his, admiring his work. And so he finally says to the young boy, well, son, are you trying to pick up some pointers watching what, what I'm doing, and, and, and maybe I can give you some advice? And the young boy replied, no, I'm just waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. Someone is always watching, right? And we are always influencing those around us, whether positively or negatively. And so when people look at our lives, what do they see? When people look at your life, what do they see? What influence are you having on those around you? Well, we are continuing in our series entitled The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words, <coughs> excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 of Jesus' words. We spent some time looking at the Beatitudes, and uh, now we're going to kind of move into the rest of the sermon. So uh, it will probably move a little bit faster. We'll take some more chunks of Scripture as we walk through this, but um, I've enjoyed our study so far, and hopefully you've been uplifted and, and encouraged by that, and so we'll continue. And uh, again, today we'll start by looking uh, at, the, uh, at verses 13 through 16. So here's what Jesus says. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt... If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are, light of, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to, the, to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. To really appreciate what Jesus is saying here, I think we need to understand what he's said leading up to this point. If you've been with us for the last several weeks or listened to the uh, sermons for the last several weeks, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, that we've been walking through Jesus' words in the early part of Matthew chapter 5, uh, what we often call the Beatitudes, and walking through those words. Uh, but even before that, we spent a little bit of time in Matthew chapter 4 and what Jesus does and says before he ever gets to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, we talked about how when Jesus shows up on the scene, he declares that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And remember, when Jesus says that, don't just go right to golden streets and never-ending chocolate fountains or whatever you picture heaven being like. Uh, don't just think about heaven and that place we go to after we die. When Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven co has come near, he's talking about the saving and delivering power of God has come near to the earth through him. The reign and rule of God is present on the earth in him. And then in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches these Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes in many ways are Jesus fleshing out what it means that the kingdom of heaven has come near. What it means that the saving and delivering power of God has come near through him. That because of the saving and delivering power of God is present on the earth through Jesus, it's going to make a difference in our lives, or it ought to make a difference in our lives. But then, in the text we just read, Jesus pivots and he begins to talk not just about the difference that the, the kingdom of heaven makes in our lives, but then because of that difference... 
the difference that our lives make in the lives of those around us. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I think it's important for us to see Jesus' call for us to be salt and light in light of, no pun intended, Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Because I think the Beatitudes show us so much of what it means to be salt and light. In other words, when we live in light of the fact that God brings his kingdom to the poor in spirit, to those who are spiritually bankrupt, when we live in light of the fact that God is out to, to comfort those who mourn uh, in light of that spiritual bankruptcy, when we live in light of the fact that God is working in the lives of the meek, when we live in light of the fact that God is going to fill those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and for things to be made right in a world that's gone wrong, when we live in light of the fact that God shows mercy to those who are merciful, when we live in light of the fact that God is attuned to the pure in heart, when we live in light of the fact that God uh, attends to the, the, the peacemaker and the persecuted, excuse me, when we live our life in light of those things and those, those ways of living, it's then that our lives will have the impact of salt and light in this world. Because the degree to which you and I align ourselves with the king and his kingdom has a lot to do with the degree to which we are salt and light in the world around us. And when Jesus likens us to salt and light, it's his way of saying that the reign and the rule of God isn't just about blessing your life. I mean, it is in many ways, and it is a blessing, and many of us can attest to that. Hopefully all of us could, but at least most of us could. But it's also about us being a blessing to the world around us. And yet I think that in many ways, you and I as Americans and in our Western culture, Christian you know, culture that we live in, we, we have a, and not even Christian in this, in this context, we, we, we have a hard time, I think, understanding the, the depth to which Jesus is, is speaking here because we don't really deal with, we, we deal with salt and light, but it's, we're, we're over, to use a, a pun, another pun, we're oversaturated with it in many ways. And so we kind of lose some of the meaning, I think, when Jesus talks about and compares us to salt and light. But I do think that understanding what Jesus says about salt and light and what that meant to those people that were hearing it in those times does go a long way to you and me really absorbing the full effect of what Jesus is trying to get across. And so I just want to try and unpack salt and light for just a few moments this morning and hopefully gives us a little bit better context. First of all, let's look at salt. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And yet salt is also, in many ways, seen as a bad thing in our culture. It's, it's a good thing. You know, it's certainly used for flavoring and used for some other things. But it's also getting its, or also gets its fair share of bad press for contributing to high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. Many people have to pay attention to their sodium intake uh, and the content in their foods. Some of you may even be on salt-restricted diets. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you may be on that. Uh, it even creates, uh, maybe this is more of a southern, southern thing, but uh, sometimes it can create some prejudice at the dinner table. Like you're served a meal, and you go to grab the salt as if the meal is not good enough, but you need to add salt to it, right? Uh, you did not do that at my mom's house. You did not do that at my grandma's house. Uh, you're almost afraid to ask for the salt to pass because it's, you know, uh, it, it, what's it not good enough for? You've got to add something to it. Uh, another thing that, about salt that I think diminishes its importance in our, our minds, is it's so easily readable. Like, we, we can get salt anytime we want. Many of, us, many of us have an abundance of salt in our homes, or at least we have access 
to it. That's why table salt is so often taken for granted and sometimes even seen as a bad thing. But in Jesus' day, salt was a very valuable and precious commodity. For one, they didn't have salt refineries today. You know, we have salt refineries and we can get salt very easily, but they didn't have salt refineries like, like we do today. They mostly got their salt from the Dead Sea, from around the Dead Sea. But the problem with uh, salt from around the Dead Sea, the salt crystals from around the Dead Sea, was that they were also mixed with a lot of other minerals and crystals. And so salt was literally rubbing up against other minerals and other types of rocks. And certain minerals and rocks could contaminate the salt, which would cause it to lose its saltiness. Sound familiar? And so it would look like salt on the outside. It would appear to be salt, and yet its saltiness would be neutralized by what it was rubbing up against. I mean, can you just see the sermons flowing out of this, right? You can see the comparisons that Jesus is making. But you'd never know whether it was salt or not, or whether the salt was good or not, until you actually tasted it. You could have a substance that looked exactly like salt on the outside. But in fact, all of its saltiness had been leached out or neutralized by the other substances it was rubbing up against in everyday life. And so that's why Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And you and I say, well, I've never had salt that wasn't salty. Well, our salt's not coming from the Dead Sea, right? It's coming from refineries, and so it's not rubbing up against those things. Good salt was hard to come by, and in many societies, salt was so highly valued that it was used for money. In fact, our English word, some of you may know this, but our English word for salary, what we get paid for our jobs, comes from the Latin word salarium, right? Which refers to payments made to Roman soldiers uh, with salt. They were paid Literally, with salt. Some of where the phrase comes from, he's not worth his salt. Many of us have maybe used that phrase. And so salt was so valuable that it was used similarly to money. All that to say that when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it's an incredible affirmation of the value and impact Jesus calls his followers to have. And you could say the same thing about light in Jesus' day and its value. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, again, it's hard to appreciate what a commodity light is until you don't have it, right? But we live in a, in a, in a, in a world, or at least where we live in, in America, where we have all kinds of lights. I mean, we probably have enough sunlight to function right now, but we have the lights on, right? When you go home, you're going to go home in your car, which many of you probably have daytime running lights, so they're on. It comes on at night. We have street lamps. We have uh, lights in our houses. We have lights that come on automatically. We have garage door lights. We have, um, you know, th- there's an abundant TV lights, right? City- even at night when, when, when there's darkness, the sun is not out, there's businesses that are lit up. There are street lights and, um, you know, stoplights. There's just all kinds of lights. Light pollution is a real thing in, in our society uh, and, and in where we live. And it's really tough to find a place that you can actually be in the dark because our life is filled with so many kinds of lights. And because of that, I think it's difficult in many ways for us to appreciate how dark things got back in Jesus's day. I remember one time when uh, I was younger, my grandparents lived up in northwest Arkansas, and I remember we, we would go up there every year for Christmas, and where they lived was like up on top of this hill. It wasn't quite a mountain, but it um, you know, it was, it was up a hill, and you kind of had to go up a, a gravel road to get there, and it was away from quite a bit, uh, and so it, it, there was not a, not a lot of, uh, a, a lot of 
um, artificial light that was up there. And so one year, we had a big ice storm, and we lost power, okay? And it got dark very, very fast. And I think I was probably like eight or nine years old. I'd, I'd gotten past the being afraid of the dark thing. So at some point, it was kind of cool for a little bit. That ended pretty quickly. Thankfully, my grandparents, my grandmother, found some candles and lit up. She got some matches and lit up the candles. It was amazing, right, when it's completely dark, even how one little candle can provide so much light, can provide so much light to the environment in which it is around. Light had become such a valuable commodity in the presence of darkness. And so again, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's affirming something significant. He's saying, in the midst of a world filled with darkness, you are the most valuable commodity. You bring such impact to the world as my followers. You are salt and you are light. So that being said, what does salt and light have to tell us about the good life that Jesus calls us to, get, to live? Well, for one, I think being salt and light calls us to be life preservers and to decay preventers. Of all the uses of salt, perhaps at the top of that list is as a, a, a decay preventer, as a preservative, if you will. Before freezers and refrigerators, salt was the lifeline for keeping foods from spoiling and decaying. Salt had the ability to, and still has the ability, to act as a preservative and to give long life to all that it permeates. That's part of the reason why it was so valuable. Now think about this in light of the Beatitudes. That's what happens when we're living meekly. That's what happens when we're showing mercy, when we're working towards making things that are wrong, and or taking things that are wrong and making them right. When we're peacemaking, those are all forms of life preservation and decay prevention. When I think about this, and, and um, you know, it's just always interesting to me when, when our world, <coughs> how our world thinks about things and, and, and what Christians may or not, may not be doing. When I think about decay prevention and life preservation, did you know that uh, a, a, a a hundred of our oldest um, colleges and, and universities, almost a hundred of them, were started by followers of Christ and for his purposes. Just, just some of the oldest universities and colleges in our country were started by people who were followers of Jesus Christ. And were, they started them for the purposes of, of his, or, or for his purposes and for his glory. The same can be said for orphanages and adoption agencies, and, and many other outreach assistance programs and, and agencies. The list just goes on and on and on. So, so many of the organizations in those areas of outreach and assistance and benevolence, their philosophies are rooted in the story of followers who were committed to doing what they could do to fight the decay of people's lives, to being life preservers. And yet so many are just oblivious to that fact. Now some of that has to do with what we as Christians have not done since then. But so many people don't know or are oblivious to the fact that behind so many organizations and all of those things are followers of Jesus Christ who are doing those things for his purposes. But in some ways, isn't that just exactly like salt? Isn't that kind of how salt is? When you go and you have a really good meal, nobody walks away from that meal thinking, man, that was the best salt I ever tasted. Right? But if there's no salt there, if, if, then, then you're, man, maybe something was just a little bit missing, right? So, something was just a little bit off. I, I read a story of 
uh, out of an area of um, Nigeria. It's called the Land of Twins. I don't, I don't know if I told you this story before, but um, the reason they call it the Land of Twins is because there's more twins there born. Uh, there are more twins born there than in any other area in the world. It, it has the highest rate. In fact, I think it's like um, the rate of births in this West African nation is about four times more than anywhere else in the world. Now, there are some theories as to why that is the case, but um, no one's really quite sure why there's just more twin-prone births there. Interestingly, though, that, that's part of the story. Interestingly, though, about 120 years ago, that was not the case. In fact, it was the polar opposite. At that time, there were no twins in that area because the predominant thinking among cultural tribes in that part of Africa was that if you had twins, it was an evil omen. And so if you had twin babies, uh, if a woman had twin babies, they would actually kill the twins and kill the woman as a way to appease the gods. And that was their way of thinking until a Scottish missionary and nurse by the name of Mary Slessor moved into the area and began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to attend to their medical needs. And over the course of several years of working with them, she began to educate them and eventually convince them that twins are not an evil omen. No comments from those of you who have you know, family members who may have twins. Um, that They're not an evil omen but rather that children, whether they come in numbers of one or two or however many numbers they come in, are a gift from God, a blessing from God. And over time, that began to reverse the curse to where the land of no twins became known as the land of twins, all because of one woman who was salt, who was a life preserver and a decay preventer. And that leads me to a second thing, second application is this. Being salt and light calls us to be illuminators, calls us to shine the light, right? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In Jesus' day, oftentimes city, cities were built on hills or on mounds or on high places to better fortify themselves, right? So, so it's tougher to attack uphill than it is to go downhill or even on level plain. So many cities were built up on a hill to be able to better defend themselves against an attack. Jerusalem itself is built on a high place, elevated place. And so the disciples knew what it was to see a city on a hill. You can't hide a city on a hill. Now you can protect it a little bit better, but you can't hide it. It's up there, right? You can see it very plainly and clearly. And according to Jesus, the same should be true of us. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus says this, there was a sect of the Jews called the Essenes. And the Essenes decided that um, the world was so wicked, and even Jerusalem itself had withdrawn itself so much from God, that they felt they needed to leave Jerusalem, and they moved out into caves near the Dead Sea. And they took with them scrolls from the Old Testament, and they would spend their time communing with God. By the way, those scrolls are what we often call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, that have become quite significant, but we'll have to save that time for a dis discussion for another time. But interestingly, they, they called themselves the Sons of Light. And yet these Sons of Light were hanging out in caves and had retreated from the world. The Sons of Light were in hiding. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl and said you put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Light does what it does, right? I know that's what you, you know, 
It's what you came to hear, that just you know, deep theological um, significant teaching, right? But light does what it does. It, it cannot be anything other than what it is. It's bright. It dispels darkness. It enables people to see what they're doing and where they need to go. You and I are not called to some passive secret faith. You're not, we're not called to some, I, I heard one person describe it as rabbit hole Christianity. Where we poke our heads up on Sunday mornings and then the rest of the week we kind of go back into our holes and we don't really let people know that we're Christians. We're not terrible people, we just don't really live like we ought to. So we're rabbit hole Christians. We're not called to a passive faith. We're called to a bold faith. We're called to an active faith. An active faith that shines the light of God's love and truth in the world around us. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He's got a lot of good stuff. But he said, there is no such thing as a secret disciple. Either the secrecy will destroy the disciple, or the disciple will will destroy the secret. And Jesus says that the reason why we let our light shine is so that people may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. We talked about this the very first week, I think it was the same, the first week or the second week. That word good there in reference to our good deeds is the Greek word kalos. It actually means attractive or beautiful. It's not just good as in, you know, uh, morally good, but, it, but it's something that looks good. It's attractive. It's, it's beautiful to look at. In other words, the life that Jesus envisions his followers living, that that kind of life as we live out this life of salt and light, we're going to live a life that's beautiful and attractive. Maybe a good question to ask us is, how beautiful and attractive is the life that we are living? How many people look at our lives and say, I want what they have? To where people see our lives and they see our good deeds and they They want some of what we have. But they don't just see us, right? But they are awakened to the reality of a father beyond us. When you walk into a room and you turn on the light, you typically don't look at the light, right? The only time you look at the light is if what happens? It doesn't come on. Otherwise, you look at what the light shines on or what the light reveals. You turn on the light so that you can see other things. You and I are called to be seen, but ultimately it's not for the sake of us being seen, but rather for the sake of God being seen in us and through us because we are illuminators so that people can get a vision of our Father and hopefully can get a vision for what life is like in Him. And that they'll want that because they see His life in us. But if that's going to be true, then there's something to be said for staying salty and illuminated. And I mean staying salty in a good way, by the way. Some of you are salty and you need to not be that. Uh, But I mean staying salty in a good way. And it's this. Here's the final takeaway. Being salt and light calls us to be continually refined and to stay in the light. When it comes to you and I being salt, there are times when you and I, let's just be honest, we lose our saltiness. We're out in the world, we're in the middle of the world, we're rubbing up against the world, and it's easy for some of the world's values and perspectives to begin to rub off on us. And our effectiveness begins to be leached out. It was Oz Guinness who said this, the main problem with Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, 
He says, it's not, the problem isn't that we aren't where we should be, like we think we should be here or here. It's not that we aren't where we should be. The main problem with Christians is that they are not what they should be, right where they are, right where you are. That's why you and I need to be constantly refined so that we can be the people Jesus has called us to be right where we are. And this is where things like being in the Word every day and spending time in prayer every day and worshiping together and being in community together uh, with other Christians and being accountable to one another. That's why those things are so important. I say this often and I'll say it again and I'll probably say it again sometime. If this is the only connection to Jesus and the only connection to His Word and the only connection to Christians that you get during the week, you are starving spiritually and you will die. Because you have to be constantly and continually refined and fed. You can't come here thinking you can fill up for the rest of the week and not get in the Word every day, not spend time with other Christians, not be influenced and accountable to each other. You can't do that. We need each other. It's hard enough when we have each other, much less when we don't have that, that, that foundation of, of, of being able to lean on each other. And it's a, it's a daily process, right? Because you and I need to be continually and consistently refined because we all lose our saltiness from time to time. And if we lose our saltiness, as Jesus asked, what are we good for? If we're not salty, and I mean that in a good way, make sure I <laughs> preface that again, then what are we good for? Sitting in a pew once a week? You know, one of the fundamental characteristics of salt is that it makes you thirsty. So let me ask you, are the people in your sphere of influence being made thirsty for God and his kingdom? And if they're not, then maybe there's some refining that needs to be going on. And then when it comes to staying in the light, Jesus would say in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I underline that so you can see that more clearly. I am the light of the world. So hold on, Jesus. I thought you said in, in Matthew chapter 5 that, that you are the light, like we are the light of the world. Jesus is telling us that we are the light of the world. But here he says, I am the light of the world. So, so which one is it, Jesus? Well, the answer is both. I, I think a great analogy of this, and this is not original with me. I, I heard it from, from someone else. But I think a great analogy of this is that Jesus is the son, and I, obviously he's the S-O-N, but he's also, uh, in this analogy, the S-U-N. And that we are the moon. The moon helps shine light in the darkness. But the light isn't coming from the moon, right? The moon is reflecting the light of the sun. But every now and then, what happens? The earth will get in between the sun and the moon. And when that happens, you get a lunar eclipse. The moon has no light whatsoever because the earth is in its way. And a lot of times what happens for you and me is that we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to play the role of the moon and reflect the sun's light upon people in this world who are living in darkness. And yet far too often the world gets in between us and the sun. And when the world gets in between us and the sun, our witness gets eclipsed. There's no light we have to reflect upon people who are in darkness. And one of the roles of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is to see to it that the eclipse will stop and the world will begin to be moved out of the way so that you and I may be able to shine His light again. We live in a world that's suffering from not enough salt and is engulfed in darkness. 
and it's time to pass the salt and turn on the light. Amen?